The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you this evening is Safe in His Hands. Then I'm going to start like this. I love the holidays. I got so excited a couple weeks ago when I walked into our sanctuary and I saw how they had decorated the stage. We have a wonderful team here and they put together just an incredible holiday set with all of the trees. And I'm curious, do all of you have your trees set up at home? No? Okay. A few stragglers. It's okay. There's still time. Anybody have more than one tree? We're a two-tree family. Um, we have one in our upstairs and one in our downstairs. They're both really small, so um, we went with two. Uh, any two-tree families? No? Okay. Uh, how about this? Real versus fake. How many real tree people do we have? You guys are like the holdouts. No, we go into the woods and we cut it down. How many fake tree people? Okay, I too have gone to the dark side. Isn't it great when you just you click the thing together and you plug it right in? Oh, it's sweet. No, no picking up needles. But I do miss the smell, I have to say. I love the trees. I love the decorations. I love the parties. And I love the lights. Oh. One of our favorite family traditions around this time of year is getting all bundled up and then hopping in the car and driving over to either Christmas card lane or candy cane lane and just kind of taking our time, walking up and down the rows of homes to see what these people have done with their lights. And some of them, they have them synced up to songs and all the rest. It's just incredible. And like I said, it's become one of my favorite traditions to go out and look at all the Christmas lights. And light has become an important and central part of the celebration uh, of Christmas. And it's also an important and central part in the celebration of Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is the Jewish holiday that happens right around this same time of year. As a matter of fact, another common name for Hanukkah is the Feast of Lights. It's also known as the Feast of Dedication. And in our study today, we're going to see Jesus returning to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. So I didn't plan it like this, but the Lord in his divine sovereignty has orchestrated things so that we would be studying Hanukkah right around Christmas. I just thought that was pretty cool. And we're picking up there in verse 22, and I just wanted to mention that between verses 21 and 22 of John 10, there's a three-month time gap there, okay? And so we learn from the other Gospels that during that period of time, Jesus went back to Galilee, and he was in the Galilee region, and he was teaching, he was ministering, and he was performing miracles there. But now he's back in Jerusalem. In verse 22, it says, then Jesus came, or I'm sorry, then came the festival of dedication, or if you look in your footnotes, Hanukkah at Jerusalem. And it was winter, And Jesus was in the temple, and he was walking in Solomon's colonnade. So we see here Jesus celebrating Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? Well, you won't find any mention of Hanukkah anywhere in the Old Testament. This is the only place that you'll find it mentioned anywhere in Scripture. Interesting. And the reason you won't find it in the Old Testament is because the events that led to its inauguration, if you will, happened during that intertestamental period. 
So there's a 400-year gap between the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and the first pages of the New Testament, which is Matthew chapter 1. There's a 400-year period there where there were no prophecies, there were no visions or anything like that, but there was all this history that happened. And, and so one of the things that happened during that period of history is that this guy named Antiochus IV, he was a Seleucid king, and he came into Jerusalem and he overthrew it. And he began to try to Hellenize the Jewish people and he outlawed the speaking in Hebrew and he forbid the people from reading or studying the Torah and he outlawed circumcision and he didn't allow the Jewish people to worship on the Sabbath day. Sounds like a great guy, right? Well, in addition to all that, if that as if that weren't bad enough, the guy also developed a bit of a God complex. Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king, he changed his own name. He didn't like the ring of that, so he changed his name to Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. <laughs> what about that for a name that you give yourself? He even had the coins of the day re-stamped, and he took the face of Zeus off the coins, and he replaced that with his own face on the body of Zeus. And underneath that, he had the phrase Theos Epiphanes written, which means the God manifests again. And if that weren't bad enough, he also went into the very temple, the house that David and later Solomon had dedicated to the Lord, and he defiled it. And he threw out all the instruments and articles of worship, and he rid the place of all vestiges and reminders of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in its place, he established an idol to Zeus. And then he took a pig. Pigs are not kosher, in case you didn't know. Jews and pigs don't necessarily go together. And he took a pig and he slaughtered it and he spilled its blood on the altar within the temple there in the Holy of Holies, thus defiling it. And doing, by the way, in doing all of that, he becomes for us a type, if you will, or a foreshadow of another character that the Bible says is going to come on the scene in the last days. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? The Antichrist. And the Bible tells us in the last days, a charismatic figure is going to step onto the world stage and he's going to issue a peace treaty between Israel and her neighbors and he's going to broker this seven-year peace treaty and the world is going to hail him as a hero. He's been able to do what no other political leader has been able to do up to this point in history, bring peace between the Jewish people and their neighbors. And then three years into this seven-year peace treaty that he's going to establish. He's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple in the process. And then midway through, he's going to go in. He's going to stop the sacrifices of the Jewish people. And the Bible tells us that he's going to assert, I am God. I'm the one that you all have been debating and questioning and wondering. Yes, I am God. Worship me. And he is the anti-Christ not just against Christ, but seeking to come in place of Christ. And this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a, a type or a foreshadow of that coming character. Well, so that's what's going on in Israel. The year was about 164 BC, so about 200 years before the events that we're reading about here in John 10. And then there was a guy named Matthias, Matthias. 
Matthias, I think his name is. And he was a Jewish priest and he had five sons and he decided we're going to rebel against the rule of Antiochus and we can't stand for this. And so they fled to the hills and they formed a ragtag group of warriors who began to conduct guerrilla warfare against the, the, the Syrians and Antiochus. And slowly but surely over the course of three years, they drove them back and they expelled them from the land of Israel. And they recaptured the temple, most importantly. But remember, it had been defiled. And so they had to go and find all the instruments. In some cases, they had to build new ones. And they built a new altar. And then they went and they found the menorah, the golden lampstand that stood there in the temple, the only source of light in the temple. But there was only enough oil for one day. And this was a special oil that God had prescribed how it was to be made in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. And you can read about it. And, and the oil had to be, the, the olives had to be beaten, not pressed. And so it took a week to produce the oil that would burn in the lamps. And the lamp was never supposed to go out. And they only had enough for one day. And so they prayed and they trusted the Lord and they just lit the menorah. But miraculously, as the story goes, it stayed lit for eight days until they could build a new batch. And that's the story of Hanukkah. And ever since that time, Jews have been celebrating Hanukkah. And, and you'll find this in most Jewish homes. Now, this is a, a seven-branched menorah. Most of the ones that are used in Jewish homes today have nine branches, um, eight branches to signify the eight days that correspond with the oil miraculously sustaining itself. This is a seven branch one, and this corresponds with the one that would be in the temple. And what I want to show you is something. As Jesus now is celebrating Hanukkah, they're in Jerusalem, and there are all these menorahs burning everywhere. Jesus shows up to celebrate, and he puts his stamp of approval on this glorious feast and this wonderful celebration. But meanwhile, he's, he's allowing the people to see in him a picture of what this menorah is supposed to represent. You see, Jesus declared what? I am the light of the world. And he was telling those people, those menorahs that you have burning in your homes, they're a picture, a type, a symbol of me and what I came to do. I'm the light that drives out the darkness of this world. And it's very interesting because as I was holding this menorah in my hands earlier this week, I started to think of all the different symbolism that you have here of Jesus. For instance, the menorah I'm holding has six branches, seven total, just as God, it reminds us of the seven days of creation. There are... Um, what, seven feasts, seven notes in a scale, seven being the number of completion. It's a beautiful picture. And then also, as you consider the menorah, the middle one is slightly taller. You notice that? You might not be able to tell. If you can zoom in on the candle you'll, or camera, you'll see that the, the middle candle is slightly taller. And this is true of every menorah. And it has a name. The name of the middle one is called the shamus. Everybody say shamus. And that means servant. Why is the middle one called the servant? Because it's the first candle that you light. And on the first day of Hanukkah, you'll light one more. And the second day, you'll light 
then two, then three, then you go throughout the week because Hanukkah lasts for eight days. But the first one is the servant candle because it gives light to all the others. And even though it's the tallest, it's known as the servant. Who does that remind you of? Jesus. Though he was Lord and though he was the Lord of all and, and the King of heaven, he condescended and he came down and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And in John chapter 1, we read that he is the light that gives light to everyone that comes into the world. And the symbolism goes on from there. What else does the, the menorah picture? It pictures for us, in my opinion, the tree of life. With you, you have kind of the main trunk or the vine, if you will, and then you have the branches coming off. What did Jesus say in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. He was talking to his disciples. And just as he is the light of the world, he has commissioned us to go and to be his light bearers and to shine in the midst of this dark world. Finally, the menorah has essentially three parts. You have kind of the shamus here, the, the trunk, and then you have the branches, and then the third part would be the oil. Now, throughout Scripture, oil always represents or is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all pictured here in the menorah. And I just, I love all of that. It's rich. And, and perhaps the Lord would lead your family to include a menorah in your holiday tradition this year. You can add it to your home. My family does. And, and my wife says the prayer over each night in Hebrew. You can look that up. You can Google it on, uh, on your computers at home. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing to know that you're now participating in and celebrating something that Jesus celebrated. And by the way, Hanukkah just so happens to overlap with Christmas this year. So I think the first night of it is the 18th, and it goes through the 25th. So you can do both. It's beautiful. Okay, so that was all just kind of introductory, because here we see Jesus in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah. And it says in verse 24 that the Jews who were there gathered around him said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, just tell us plainly. I love that. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. You see, my sheep listen to my voice I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Ooh, that sounds good, doesn't it? He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Wow. So this whole discourse begins with this question that they ask there in verse 24, where they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Now, a bit of context for that question and why they asked it. Remember the background. They're all there in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah. Hanukkah, it, it remembered that event in which Judas Maccabeus led a revolt against Antiochus the Syrian and drove him out of Jerusalem. And, and so they were, they were steeped in patriotism around this particular time of year. 
And they were anticipating another deliverer, someone like Judas Maccabeus, to come on the scene. Why? Because they were under the thumb of Rome, and they wanted a military leader who would expel the Romans and restore the might of the Jewish people and the land of Israel. And they wanted a military leader to lead them in victory on the battlefield. And so they said, just, are you that guy? Are you our Judas Maccabeus? And Jesus says, I am, but I'm not the Messiah that you want me to be. You see, he had told them. He goes, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. And he had a number of times. In John 4, remember that story where Jesus is having the conversation with the woman at the well? And at a certain point in their conversation, she says, "Uh, when the Messiah gets here, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus tells her, I that speak to thee am he. He tells her plainly in John 4. In in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He's saying, I am heaven sent. In in chapter 7, he talks about being sent from God. In chapter 8, he takes for himself the very name of God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And then here in the most clear and unmistakable language that you'll find him using anywhere in the Gospels, in verse 30, Jesus clearly tells them, I and the Father are one, one in essence, one in nature. So he had told them a number of times, but they refused to believe, which is why he pointed them to his works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they also testify about me. And there was just... There was no denying the power, the miraculous power that Jesus walked in. It was like he basically banished disease from ancient Israel for a three and a half year span when he walked on the earth and ministered. Everywhere he went, blind eyes were opened, the lame walked, the deaf could hear, the mute had their tongues loosed. And all of this, it would have jogged the memory and minds of the people, and it would have sent them back to their own scriptures, for it was all foretold in places like Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, the prophet spoke about how when the Messiah comes, how the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and how the lame will leap like the deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. That's a picture of what was happening at at, at Jesus' hands and the work of his ministry. The point is the evidence was all around them, but they chose not to see it. And according to Jesus... The reason they didn't believe in verse 26 is because they weren't his sheep. He says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. So it's not a lack of evidence, and it has everything to do with the fact that they aren't his sheep. So again, he returns to this theme of the sheep and the shepherd. This is something that we've been going over now for the the past few weeks, at least, here in John 10, and it's just been wonderful for me. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed it as well, but I'm just reluctant to move on because it's such a, a rich, deep metaphor. And he, he, he alludes to it again in verse 27. He says, this is how you know if you're one of my sheep, Jesus says. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. But there's more to it than that. And I think what's implied there is they long to hear my voice. 
They love to hear my voice. And might I just say, I am so thrilled and blessed to see hundreds of people gathered on a Saturday evening here in Southern California, in San Diego, and you're here, why? Not so that you can just sing some songs or that you can check some box or do your duty, but you're here, I believe, because you love the sound of the voice of your heavenly shepherd. Somebody say amen. And we open the word of God, and we feast at the table of his faithfulness, and it's so good to just know that the Lord meets with us in this way as we gather week after week, and he is so faithful to show up. How many of you have heard the voice of the Lord as it's been shared through the word of God? Amen. Praise the Lord. So many of us. And that's an indication that you're his sheep. You love the word of the Lord, even as you love the Lord of the word. But it's also that you're known by him. And he communicates to that to you in, in all kinds of personal ways. And then the third evidence is that you, you follow him. It's pretty straightforward. As he leads, as he guides, you follow. And by the way, sometimes the Lord will lead you into places that you don't necessarily want to follow. Has anybody ever found themselves in a place like that? And it's like, I don't know if I want to follow you there. But you're not the shepherd. He's the shepherd. And, and so he leads us into those places. Why? Because he knows what's best for us. He knows in the various seasons of life that, oh, no, it's drying up down here. We need to climb to higher elevations or we need to travel back down low or there's a weather system moving in. And so we've learned over the years to trust our shepherd. And even when it doesn't make sense to us, we follow him because our shepherd knows best. And here's what I love in verse 28. Oh, this is the good stuff. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. He gives us in verse 28, three incredible promises. These are promises that Jesus gives to all of his sheep. Let's look at them. The first one is, I give them eternal life. If we had any inkling of an idea or understanding of all that that entailed, we would just be jumping out of our skin right now because of how excited we were. Eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the wonderful things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, we try to read about it in the book of Revelation, and, and we, we get little bits and pieces throughout the scriptures, but we, in our faintest, most wildest imaginations, we, we can't even begin to fathom what the Lord has planned for us. Eternal life. I give them eternal life. And by the way, a lot of us think of eternal life as just kind of like a never-ending life, life that goes on and on and on and on and on. And yes, that's one aspect of it, but that's not primarily what he's talking about here. Because at the end of the day, everyone has eternal life. Uh, every person that you meet is an eternal soul, and they're going to spend eternity somewhere, either with the Lord or apart from the Lord. And, and so the real question isn't, are you going to live forever? It's, where are you going to spend eternity? And for those who choose to follow the Lord, that means you get to spend eternity with him. And that's what Jesus is talking about. When he talks about eternal life, he's talking about a quality of life. It's life that bubbles up and spills over into the next life and gets better and better and better with time. Something else he notes about this eternal life is that it's a gift. He says, I give it to them. And I bring this up because I think we as humans 
have a tendency to want to try to earn what God clearly tells us can only be received as a gift. If it's a gift, you can't earn it, you can't work for it, and you can't deserve it. All you can do is receive it by grace. Somebody say amen. Let's read this verse together. This is a familiar one, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and let's read it out loud. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn it by grace, uh, by, by works. So the analogy or illustration I use for this would be uh, every Christmas morning, we gather around the tree and, you know, you hand out the presents and, and everybody has their own way of doing that. And some of you are one by one, one kid at a time. Others, it's just like free for all. You get buried under a pile of wrapping paper or whatever. But one thing I've never seen happen with my kids I've never had, and I have four kids, they range in age. My oldest is about to turn 18, my youngest is nine. None of them have ever done this. All right, thanks, Dad. I wanna square up with you here. Um, what do I owe you? I mean, can we, can we just take care of this right now? That's never happened. They've never pulled out a wallet, never tried to pay me for the gifts that I've purchased them. They, they really get this receiving thing. <laughs> they understand it, and we should as well gifts are to be received, and eternal life is a gift that you receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You put your faith in him, and he gives you the gift of eternal life. That's the first promise. The second promise, they will never perish. This is the same phrase that we find in that beautiful verse, John 3, 16, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And when it talks about not perishing, it's not talking about annihilation there, but it's talking about being destroyed or being lost, which when you boil it all down, that's what hell is. It is an eternity spent apart from the presence of God. It's not a place that God has designed for you or anyone else. It's a place that he designed for the devil and his fallen angels. And the only way anyone will ever get there is by walking over the dead body of Jesus who he died on the cross in your place and saying, I don't want anything to do with him. And you choose it on your own. And Jesus says, those who are my sheep, they never will perish. And he uses the strongest language possible in the original Greek here. It's, it's a combination of this phrase, umi, and it's a double negative. Umi, umi. It means like, no, not never, which I understand is horrible English, but it makes for good Greek. And in the Greek language, when you want to stress or underscore the impossibility of something happening, you use that phrase, umi. And there's a couple of times where it shows up in scripture. Let me read them to you. Number one, Luke 21, 33 says it like this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never, umi, pass away. Not ever, it's an impossibility. Every prophecy will come to pass. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every word, both corporate and personal. If God gives you a personal word, that word has to come to pass, just as the Lord says. Praise the Lord. Secondly, in Hebrews 13, 6, he says, I will never, umi, leave you nor forsake you. Same concept there. Never leave you nor forsake you. You know, during the holidays, it's common to feel 
um, isolated and alone, and, and I know that, that feelings of, of loneliness are amplified during the holidays, in particular for those of us who have lost loved ones in the last year, and, and you, you feel their absence, and maybe you feel all alone, and I'm here to remind you that you're not alone because Jesus has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and even if your mother and father forsake you, he's not going to abandon you. He's been with you every moment of every day in your lowest lows, in your lowest valleys, he was right there in the fire with you, and he's with you right now. So you turn to him. You're never alone. His word will never pass or fail, I'm sorry, and you will never perish. And then he says this, this third promise, and nothing shall snatch them out of my hand. And it's really cool because he says, nothing will snatch them out of my hand. I think he says that in verse 28. But then if you jump down to verse 29, he says, and my father who's greater than all, nothing will be able to snatch them out of his hand. So it's like we're being held at this moment between the vice grip of the hands of the eternal son and the eternal father. Can you think of a safer place to be? Safe within his hands. You're safe in his hands. You know, for years, Allstate, the insurance company, I know, has been running that successful ad campaign. You're in good hands with Allstate, right? Well, when you belong to Jesus, you're not just in good hands. You're in God hands. Amen? Sometimes people ask me if a Christian can lose their salvation. And I like to point them to this verse right here. I mean, if that's your question tonight, can a Christian lose their salvation? Let me answer that question with another one. Can you think of something that is strong enough to pry a person out of the hands of God the Father and God the Son? If you can tell me something that's that's that strong, then, then I'll believe you because that's where believers are being held. It's almost like Paul the Apostle in Romans 8 tried to think of something that could separate us, somehow get just, you know, a a file in there and just create a wedge and and, and get us out. But he, he, he came up short. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, he said it like this. He said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If it fits under that category of has it been created, (laughs) then it can't separate you from God's love. And I'm so thankful tonight that our eternal security, it doesn't rest on our ability to hold on to him, but rather it's based on God's power and ability to hold on to us. And some of you, I can, think, I can imagine what you're thinking, but what if I slip? What if I stumble? What if I, can I slip through the cracks of his fingers? Can we slip out of his hands? No, I'll tell you why, because it's not possible. You see, when you're faithless, he still remains faithful. He can't deny himself. And since you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, it makes sense that there's nothing you can do to lose it. Now, I want to point this out. You can lose your peace if you choose to practice a lifestyle of sin. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You can lose the sense of intimacy that you enjoy with the Father. 
And you can, in, you can lose the blessings of walking with him. And you can invite a, 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 just a whole bunch of pain into your heart. But you can't lose your salvation if you're a true child of God. You know, we used to, when I was young, we'd sing this song, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And it was all about leaning on the arms of Jesus. And it's good to know that we can lean on his arms, but it's even better to know that we're safely tucked in his hands. And that's what Jesus promises us. But we're not ecstatic yet, and I'll tell you why. Because we have this question. How do I know that he can be trusted? He's given us these promises. But how do we know that he can really be trusted? After all, any promise is only as good as the promise giver. So let me quickly walk you through three reasons why God's promises to us can be trusted. Again, we need to know that the promise giver is someone who's trustworthy, right? Because people make promises that they break all the time. For years, Sears, you remember Sears? Sears was known for backing many of their tools and appliances with a lifetime warranty. And it was an attractive incentive for customers who were lured in by the thought of being able to return anything when it, whenever it broke over the course of their lifetime. 35 years later, hey, this broke. Sears will take it and they'll fix it because it had that lifetime warranty. And it was a great deal for a lot of folks until a few years ago when Sears filed for bankruptcy, which left a lot of people in the lurch who wondered if their warranties were suddenly void. How do we know that God won't do the same thing and renege on his promises to us? Three quick responses. Number one, because he's faithful. I love Hebrews 10.23. You might want to jot that verse down. It says it like this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? For he who promised is faithful. That's Hebrews 10.23. I just want to remind you tonight that every promise in Jesus is yes and amen. And by the way, there are over 7,000 promises. And every one of those promises is like a blank check that has been signed over to you. Not even one of his promises has ever failed, and they never will. Don't, don't think you're going to be the first. You know, God has been faithful to keep his promises to every person throughout the history of the world, but now you're going to be the first. No. He's brought you this far, and he'll see you through to the other side. He's faithful. Number two, we can trust him because he is not only faithful, he's also able. Speaking of Abraham and the faith of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. Paul wrote this. Paul, speaking of Abraham, said he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. He's faithful, but he's also able. You know, sometimes people write checks with their mouth that they can't back up with their life or their actions, you know. And the, these people, they, they might chirp on the sidelines of an NFL game and like, oh, you're nothing, lineman. I'd take you out. And they're writing checks with their mouth. And if they ran into that defensive lineman in the parking lot, they can't cash that check. Well, God isn't like that. He's able to do whatever he promises. Is there anything he can't do? That's not a, uh, a, that's not a, a question I, I want you to just think about. Let's answer it together. Is there anything God can't do? No. Well, actually, there is. <laughs> There's a few things that God can't do. God can't lie, right? He can't lie. And 
He can't break his promises, number two. And number three, he can't change. Why? For him to change in any of those ways would cause him to become something less than God. And so he has bound himself by the perfectness of his nature to respond in kind. And we should always be changing because God is already perfect. He never changes. And that's something that should encourage us. He's only bound by the perfections of his own character. And that's good news. So he's faithful. He's able. And number three, we can trust him because he's God. (laughs) And I love how Jesus, right after he makes these amazing promises here in John 10, verse 28. In verse 29, he says, I and the Father are one. And so he's directly tying together the idea of this promise with his identity as God. It wasn't an accident. It was by design. He's certifying his promises to us based on who he is. Some of you will remember how back in the good old days, and I feel like I'm old enough to say that now, 43 years old, I can say in the good old days. In the good old days, before there were contracts and lawyers and people's word was their bond, you could strike a deal with someone with nothing more than a handshake and your word, right? Because when you shook someone's hand, you were staking, as it were, the reputation of your family name on the line, and you were kind of certifying the deal in that way. Well, when Jesus declared, and I and the Father are one, he was putting his name on the line. And that's how we know these promises will never fail, for there is no higher name than the name of Jesus. It is the highest name in heaven and on earth. And at that name, every tongue will confess and every knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the name of Jesus is the most powerful name in the universe, and it's been exalted to the highest place because he and the Father are one. Now, we've got a little bit of work to do before we finish, but that was good, wasn't it? Oh, okay. I thought it was good. These are amazing promises. I'm just going to plug along here. Are you with me? Is this good? All right. Praise the Lord. Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Why are they stoning him? Because he says, I and the Father are one, making himself equal with God. They see that as a sin of blasphemy. Jesus again refers them to his works. He says, they say, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, this is where things get really interesting. Jesus says, is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed. And many people came to him and said, John never performed a sign. Yet all that he said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed. So it's interesting because Jesus says, Hey, look, even in your own scriptures, it refers to 
gods. What is he talking about? Well, this is a uh, reference to Psalm 82. And in that Psalm 82, Psalm 82, verse 6, God refers to the judges of Israel. And the word that he uses for judges there is Elohim, which is the Hebrew word commonly associated and used to describe God, Elohim, it's God in the plural form. But on a rare occasion, and that's the vast majority of times it's used in scripture. But there are a few instances in the scripture where it is also used to describe earthly judges in the sense that they are exercising that divine attribute, if you will, of passing judgment on people. And so they're not God's big G, but they're God's lowercase g. And so his argument is, if ordinary men who serve as judges and do God's work in that way can be called gods without blaspheming, then how can you accuse me of blasphemy when I actually am the son of God? See, there are a lot of people who say, well, see, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's, he's just saying, I'm just like those judges in Israel, and I'm no different than them. But that's to misinterpret and misread what he's saying. He's using an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, if if he uses the word Elohim, if he calls them God's lowercase g, and they're just men, they're just judges, how much more so should I be called God in the sense that I was sanctified, set apart, and sent from heaven? Jesus is saying, I am eternal. When I was born in the manger, it was as much an arrival as it was a departure from heaven. He left heaven and he came to this earth. He came from God, was sent from God, and is one with God. God. Without a doubt, Jesus was claiming to be God. And so they understood this, which is why they tried to grab him again in verse 39, but it wasn't his hour, so he slips away. He goes back to the land of Galilee, that region where the Jordan was, and he begins to minister, and it says many people come and many believed in him. And so the chapter ends with a debate raging once again. And this is, seems to be the pattern of how things go in the Gospel of John. Jesus performs a sign. He uses it as a pretext for a teaching about himself, some revelation about himself this time. He says, I am the good shepherd in response to the miracle of the healing of the blind man. And then the people are divided over his words. Some reject him and some receive him. And where I want to leave you with tonight is which group do you belong to? Are you one of his sheep? Because he wants to call you into his fold. And to those who are his sheep, he says, I'll give you eternal life. And you'll never perish. And no one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your word. And this time that we've spent together in it, how it's always profitable, how it always nourishes, edifies, and encourages. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of your word, how you are faithful and obliged to, to keep every one of your promises. You're faithful to your word, but you're also able to perform what it says because you're God. And that means that we're safe in your hands, kept between the vice grip of the father and son's hands. And it's interesting because if you, you think about that picture, and I want you to picture yourself there cupped in the hands of Jesus. And if you look more closely, you'll observe that they're nail-scarred hands. 
which is another evidence, another proof to you that he will never abandon you. He'll never leave you. He'll never let you slip through the cracks. Why? Because he went to the cross for you when you were at your worst, when you cared nothing for him. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And if he was willing to go to the cross in your place, and if those hands that hold you close, if they have the scars from those nails, how much more is he freely going to give you all things now that you belong to him? Thank you, Lord, that since there was nothing we did to earn your love, there's nothing we can do to lose your love. We love you, we love you, we love you, our good, good shepherd. Praise you, praise you, and thank you. If you want to enter the sheepfold, if you want to give your heart to Jesus tonight, I want to lead you in a simple prayer. You can just pray this prayer with me out loud, and those who love and follow the Lord, you can, I'll invite you in the prayer as well, and you can say it as a way of reaffirming your love for Jesus. Just say, dear Jesus, I invite you in to be my shepherd, to lead me, and to guide me. I love you. Here's my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.